Well, uh, I'd like to invite you to take your Bible, please, as we spend some time in God's Word today in the Scriptures. And uh, for guests, particularly, both here in the West and in the East, we're um, very glad you're here. Maybe I've not had a chance to meet you, but my name is Wayne, and I'm part of the pastoral team, and uh, it's thrilling that we're going to have some time together. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you in the West Auditorium. There's also some people moving around the East Auditorium right now who'd be glad to give one to you, or maybe you can pull it up on your smartphone. We're going to look at the book of Luke today, which is about this far through the Bible, okay? A little past three quarters. Luke chapter 24 is what we're going to read in just a few minutes, all right? Incidentally, those in the East Auditorium, I'm, Gary and Judy and I will be in there with you at, towards the end of the service, so we'll look forward to meeting you uh, in that setting there as well, all right? So while you're looking for Luke chapter 24, I, uh, I had lunch with some friends this week, and we were chatting about this, that, and the other, and the topic came up that if you could go overseas somewhere, where would you go, and where would you like to visit? And I heard Tales of Wales, somebody wanted to visit the Welsh Islands, I heard of Ireland and Italy and France and so on. No one, though, said, I'd like to go to Antarctica. I don't blame them. Way too cold for me any time of the year to want to go to Antarctica. But there may be somebody here that wasn't at lunch that would say, you know, I'd really like to go to the Earth's most southern continent. I'd, maybe you're here today, you say, I'd like to be involved in a scientific year-long mission to go and study ice, I suppose, is what you study when you go to Antarctica. I'd say if that's what you want to do, knock yourself out. I'm not into ice like that. If I want to study ice, I'll open up the door of the freezer and look in there for about 23 seconds. That's enough. I will have studied all I need to see about ice. But if you do sign on to a scientific mission, there are some rules you have to obey. And here's one that might surprise you. Some things on your checklist that you have to check off before they'll sign you on. You have to have some surgery beforehand. What kind of surgery? What would you think it would be? You'd have to have an appendectomy before you go to Antarctica. Why is that? Well, if you're going to be there for a, for a year, uh, then once winter arrives, they can't get anyone to you. And so they want you to be, you know, they can't get a ship there, they can't get a plane there. You've got to do a lot of things, including have an appendectomy before you go. Why is that? Isn't there a doctor on each scientific team? There is, yes. But there's an experience that comes out of 1961 that made everybody have an appendectomy before they go. In 1961, the Soviets sent a team to Antarctica. The team included a young 27-year-old surgeon who had an appendicitis attack right in the middle of winter. No one could get to him. There was no one who could manage the needed surgery. His name is Leonid Rogozov. What, did he th what do you think he had to do? He had to operate on himself. Now he knew he was in trouble in the days leading up to the surgery. He could tell that he had a problem and he knew all the signs and the symptoms and he knew he had appendicitis. So. What are you going to do? You're the only physician there. You're the only one who knows what to look for. So he trained some assistants. He said to two of his fellow scientists, you are going to be the medical team. And they had to learn how all the different equipment he was going to need. They had to learn how to keep a sterile environment. There was a third assistant for the assistants. So there was the doctor. 
There were two assistants and there was one third, a third assistant. You know what the third assistant was required to do? He was required to move a chair around in case either of the two assistants became faint during the surgery and that they would have somewhere to sit down very quickly and not fall on the doctor. The scene was all set. Can you imagine it? How would you respond to this? Everyone was gowned up. He had a mirror placed on his stomach to see his own abdomen. He injected a local anesthetic in his stomach. And he said later on, as we began the surgery, I looked at everyone in the room, all gowned up, dressed in white. And I realized their faces were whiter than their gowns. <laughs> Do you think? By the time he had it out, by the way, just as an aside, the mirror wasn't working because it was all backwards. So he actually did the surgery by feeling. And when he brought that appendix, appendix out, it was within hours of bursting, he would have been dead within a few days. Hmm. Don't you think they were afraid a bit? Just to, I, would ima- I can get the whiteness in there, in the, you know, <coughs> excuse me, the whiteness on their faces. Uh, surely everyone's heart was beating a little faster that, that, that day as compared to normal. There are some unusual settings in life that often bring fear. Some of you may be right at the age of 16 or so, and uh, maybe you're familiar with this fear. Some of us have lived through it. You're at this place called the Department of Motor Vehicles, and you're there, and you're sitting behind the wheel, and you're waiting for the examiner to show up and sit in the passenger seat. You know that fear, right? Will I pass? Will I make any mistakes? Will I get my license at the end of this next 30 minutes? We remember that that moment for many of us do who are a little bit older. We also, some of us remember, uh, maybe some of us remember anyways, uh, this situation where driving again, except this time it's not a a, uh, driver's license examiner who's in the car with us. It's a baby, a brand new baby that's in the car seat in a car carrier in the back seat. And you're driving even more gingerly than you did when you were 16 years of age. It's like you're, you're transporting plutonium across the country, you know, and all it is is a drive from the hospital home, but you get it, right? Fear, I understand it. Other settings. There's the fear of leaving one job for another. Will it work out? Is it gonna be better for me? Is it gonna be better for our house? There's fear into stepping into a marriage. There's fear when a marriage ends, either through divorce, the struggle of divorce, or perhaps through the loss of a a loving spouse. And people legitimately ask, what's my new normal? Can I manage this alone? Who's Who's gonna help me with this task or that responsibility? Well, today we're going to see what Scripture has to say about ways in which we can step into that fear and experience a different response. We're examining our last message today in this series we've been saying, Why Easter Matters. And today's topic is a response to fear, namely peace. Throughout the past few weeks, we've examined some of the narratives that have taken place or that took place in the immediate hours, days, and weeks after Jesus' resurrection. We started in Luke chapter 24, where we are today. So we're going back to where we started originally. And we moved forward a few days, a few weeks, and then last week, we were seven weeks out from Jesus' resurrection. But today, we're coming back to the resurrection day. And as as we read this today, and as we spend some time, here's the question I'd like you to ask. Why does Easter matter? What's so important about Easter in light of this passage we're reading today? And specifically, why, 
what does, a, what does a resurrected Jesus have to say about fear in our lives? So let's read beginning in verse 36 of chapter 24. Just a reminder, look back a few verses and you'll see what we looked at over the Easter weekend where two guys are walking to Jeru- away from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus and Jesus suddenly shows up. They have a meal together. He disappears and they race back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples... This is what took place. So this is the evening or so, maybe late in the evening uh, of Resurrection Day, perhaps even the next morning. We're a little unclear, but here's what happens. So they arrive and they're telling the disciples about this in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, while they're saying, we just saw Jesus in Emmaus seven miles away. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. (laughs) This guy shows up who didn't come through the door. He's kind of just appeared, you know, appeared like Captain Kirk through the windows or something or other, just there, osmosis in the room, all right? And they're startled, they're frightened, they think they see a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's me, touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. You can see that this is real flesh. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And so they're trying to take it in. This business of the resurrection, this is within the first few hours. They don't understand it yet. It's beyond their comprehension. And so they've got this joy and fear and amazement. It says, while they still didn't believe it because of joy and amazement, they're like all these emotions together. He finally says, do you have something to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it. And he ate it in their presence. So they're used to seeing Jesus eat. So yeah, this is really the guy. This is him. This is the resurrected Jesus. And I'm like them. If Jesus, like a resurrected body shows up in in a room I'm standing in, I'm going to be a little startled. I'm going to be a little bit frightened. They think they've seen a ghost. They're like the guys in that surgery room in 1961 whiter than the clothes they're wearing. You know, what's going on? Afraid. I had a really bad grandpa moment of fear this week. Here's how it went. On Tuesday nights, I keep Pippi. She's our 21-month-old granddaughter. Uh, Leslie is usually at choir practice, and her parents, our son-in-law Eric and our daughter Eric, they go to small group. And so I just keep Pippi. It's a wonderful time every week, two or three hours. I get to just hang out with her. And sometimes we're at the house. Sometimes we go for, on a trip. If I say, you want to go for a walk? I want to go for a ride? Man, she is all in because, well, we do things like what we did this week. We went to the park. We played in the grass. Then we stopped at Dairy Queen because I needed ice cream. <laughs> she said she needed ice cream, but nonetheless... And so we did a few things like that. We went and bought a little toy at Dollar General and that sort of stuff. And then I noticed that the, the, I was driving Leslie's car and I noticed the gas was quite low. I thought, oh, well, let's clear. Well, anyway, so I'm getting gas. I'm standing at the fuel pump like this, right? And I'm looking at the car. I'm thinking, you know, Leslie would really like this car to be a lot cleaner than it is. So I, I'll... <laughs> this is coming off the bad way, isn't it? No, I'm looking at the car. It was my car. I was driving my car. How's that? (laughs) My car needed gas. Is that better? Whatever the case. Okay, so I'm standing there. And I noticed the gas station had one of these, like, touchless car washes where the arm goes round and round like that. And I'm thinking, well, I could could take the car through that, and it would look a lot better. And, you know, so I I paid for that. And um, we, we went into the car wash. It's a very innocent move on my part. 
Except, it's not so innocent, if you're a 21-month-old strapped backwards in a car seat, unable to move, when that scary shadow of the arm comes along the wall and the ceiling, you're looking out the window, and then it sprays water and foam, and it goes away, and then it comes back again. She screamed and screamed and screamed. Absolute terror for her. And as for me, what do you do? You can't drive off the things going round and round, right? <laughs> and wouldn't you know it? I thought, well, as I was paying for it, I thought, well, I'll pay an extra few bucks so I can get a few extra go-rounds, you know, <laughs> with like that liquid wax and all that sort of stuff. So I'm caught. I've paid extra dollars for extra rounds of extra terror. <laughs> and there she is in the... I, I, here's what happened. I knew we had a long way to go. Once, once, once the screaming started, I thought, we got to go. This going around a lot yet. So I, you're in the, you can't go anywhere, right? So I got, I got the seatbelt off, and I'm kind of turned backwards in the front seat, trying to get my arms around a car seat in the back seat, and get, if I can get my face close to hers and everything. Oh. It finally ended. And the air blower started. We, I, I don't know what I paid for the air blower. We didn't get it. We just drove right on through. We were out of there. I'm thinking the disciples experienced that kind of absolute terror. They think they've seen a ghost. That arm is coming their way. And Jesus responds to the terror. He addresses the fear even as he arrives in the door. Or they didn't come through the door. Even as he arrives... And yet before he even says anything about what's going on, what does he say? Peace. Do you see it there? Verse 36, peace be with you. You know, there are other occasions when we have the biblical narrative telling us what happened when Jesus arrived, the resurrected Jesus arrived at this scene or at that scene or at that scene. And in every one, the first thing he says is peace. Like, for example, John chapter 20, verse 19, we read that on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. So this is probably the same scene as what we have in Luke 24. This is now John 20. Again, the writer remembers exactly what it was like. We were there because for fear of the Jewish leaders. And what happens? Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And that same statement is found every time Jesus shows up and meets some, the, they, the people meet this resurrected Jesus. What does he say? Peace. You know, I've noted that of all times in American history, this should be a time of peace. And I want you to see if you can follow my reasoning on this. We should be experiencing peace now in light of the generation who is leading our nation right now. For the most part, baby boomers are now the leading forces of American life. I'm one, okay? We're the largest demographic group, and we will be for some years yet, even now with some baby boomers moving into their so-called more mature years, until a bunch of us die off, the millennial, then the millennials will take over. But for the time being, we hold the power and authority within our culture. We are baby boomers. But what were we before we were, like, in our 30s. We were hippies. All right? And what did hippies want? Wasn't it the baby boomers, the hippies, who called for peace? And now we're leading the nation? And why aren't we experiencing peace if that was a part of who we were in our formative years? Didn't we have signs that were the rage? Peace, peace. 
Wasn't the summer of 1967 the summer of love, the summer of love? All, wasn't that all that about world peace? We had all these songs, Joan Baez singing folk songs. And what were the folk songs about? Peace. Or maybe you remember this song. Take a listen. Do you remember that? Those of us who are, who are old enough? That was a huge hit in the middle of the 60s. What happened? That song was so popular, it's actually in many hymnals now. It's almost a hymn. What happened? All that energy and passion for peace we now lead, and yet where's the peace in our land? And those are your millennials coming behind us. You're wondering, that's who you were? You guys were the hippies? You guys were the ones who were all after peace? What happened? I suspect we squandered our peace our peace possibilities and our aspirations. And if ever there was a day, today's the day we'd say, when our nation is in need of peace just as much as a 21-year-old strapped into the back seat of my car needed peace on Tuesday night. We're fearful of the terror that keeps coming round and round. We just get past one portion of it, and what happens? That, that shadow on that arm comes back around again, and there's more terror. In the midst of that sort of setting, did you know Jesus offers peace? The scriptures say that Jesus offers peace this way. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. This is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Do you notice how often we can experience this peace? It's available at all times and in every way. May the Lord of peace himself, that's the name of Jesus. May Jesus Christ, the God of peace, give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. This Lord of peace is available at all times and in every way. Whatever you face, or whatever our world faces right now, that Lord of peace is available. Scriptures point out different ways in which the peace of Jesus Christ can be brought into our lives. And I want to give you a list of some places where that peace might be available and should be used today, what Scripture says. For example, Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 14 that there should be peace between people, one person to another. In the context of talking about relationships in Romans 14, Paul the Apostle says, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Not just some effort, but every effort. Work hard to be at peace one-to-one. One one. It also says, Scripture tells us also that not only should we have peace person-to-person, person, but we should have peace within a nation's borders. In Acts chapter 24, it points this out, that wise nations seek peace within their borders. And at present, I would say this, our nation is not at peace within its soul and culture. We rage on at present, don't we? Right against left, rich against poor, Elite versus the masses, guns versus no guns, pro-life versus pro-abortion, capitalists versus socialists, Republicans versus Democrats. And I have my personal opinions on some of those things, and some of those things are preachable, but I'm, I, I'm quite aware of this, that regardless of what you and I might think about those things, at present, within our land, there are strident and vitriolic voices that are way louder than any language of peace. 
But scripture calls the people of God to have peace between each other and to work for peace within the borders of their nation. It also, scripture also says that we should be not only have peace from within our own borders, but nation to nation. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says that a wise national leader always assesses the strengths of other nations and seeks peace. And think about the lives that could be saved if peace could be brought between some nations, not just within their borders, but between different peoples and different tribes and different groups. What would it be like? How many lives would be saved if we could bring peace to Syria? If we could bring peace to the struggle between Russia and the Ukraine? What about the warring tribes that are within South Africa? Different nation groups that are within South Africa that war with one another. What about if we could bring peace to the border between Gaza and Israel? We watch all those settings and say, if there'd only be peace, and then you, who else do you have to worry about? Well, you've got to worry about those crazy neighbors to the north, the Canadians. <laughs> you never know when they st- may, may start amassing at the border, right? For those of you who are guests, I'm a Canadian, so I can say these things. <laughs> we look at the world, and we go, what about the Canadians, eh? Could be bad. You know... There are some days when I've got to say, I simply want to forego looking at the international news for fear of what fear it might bring to me. Does that make sense? I, 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 don't, I don't want to look for fear of what fear it might bring. Our world needs peace. So you have the scriptures calling us to have peace with people, peace within our own borders, peace from nation to nation, and more concretely for us here at First Christian today, the scriptures call for us to have peace within congregations. In Acts chapter 9, it's very clear that this is one of the th- ways in which churches should be known, that we are a peaceful congregation following Christ together with one vision. But sadly, I think we all know, if you've been in the church for a while, that sadly struggle within congregations is far too common. And moving from sadly to tragically, if you, want to, if you will, going down that line... Once struggle starts in a congregation, not only is it sad for the congregation, but tragically, Christ's message and witness are maligned through congregational disputes and crises. We've experienced it at times. Those struggles bring disrepute. I mean, the people looking in from the outside, they go, I don't want to be part of that. If that's what means being a Christian, I don't want to get in the midst of that. And those struggles also bring not only disrepute to the body of Christ, but they bring damage within the body. There's an expectation, friends, within Scripture that congregations work together in life and vision and unity. And uh, that approach to following that focal point is one of the key things that our leaders are always asking and always praying about. Are we unified in vision? Are we following each other in the right way? Are we, are we seeking God? Are we hearing what God's calling us to do and to be and to where we should go? So as an aside in that regard, since things are all peaceful right now and everything is good, I want to let you know that next weekend we have an important announcement in store for the congregation. Not from a point of crisis, but from a point of we're all unified together. We've been working on this for some months and I'm anxious to tell you about it in our our time around scripture next week. We're going to focus particularly next week on our congregation's mission and vision. And it's the first weekend of a three-part series called Thrive. It's an important weekend flowing out of the peaceful and unified vision that we have within our church right now. Expect more on that next weekend. Also, don't forget that next weekend we have our semi-annual congregational meeting at 3.30. 
we'll deal with that next week. Because before we get to all that, I want to give you one final aspect of what Scripture says should happen when we hear these words from Jesus, peace, peace to you. See, it's not only about people to people or person to person, if you will, and within a nation and from nation to nation and within a congregation. Scripture is also very clear that when it comes to this peace business, there could also be, there should also be peace between God and individuals. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about it right here in Luke chapter 24. Remember, he appears to his frightened disciples, and we're going to read where he tells them why all this has taken place, why I came, why I died, why I rose from the dead. He says that he's, we're going to read where he says it's all for reconciliation between individuals and God. Look again at our passage. In verse 40, what's going on? They're eating together. They're having a good time. They're trying to grab a hold of the fact that Jesus is, is risen again. He's alive. And then beginning in verse 45, why do we read? That he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. Make note of a couple things. They've been walking with Jesus for a long time. They've experienced his life and they haven't got it till now. But what happens? He opens their minds. Suddenly, oh man, now I get it. And he says, a lot of things happened. And why did they all happen? Why did I die? Why did I rise from the dead? Why? So that repentance and forgiveness of sins will take place. He's proclaiming peace in the midst of the fear. He's saying, you know, regarding your relationship with God Almighty, I've got some really good news for you that you've been wondering how you're going to measure up. But some really good news is before you were even on the planet, God had a plan in place. And there was a movement of peace between humans and God that God started. God was the catalytic engager in this, if you will. That it, this, this event that brought about peace for you between you and God was the arrival, the ministry, the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God started it and he says, you may sense some fear, but you need, don't need to worry about it anymore because now through my blood, repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all. My death and resurrection will bring about a new approach between you and God, an approach of peace. So in the midst of all the crazy stuff you guys have this coming week, or throughout, from Luke 24, throughout the next seven weeks, and then the years beyond that, you can know this, your junk and stuff from the past, the sins of the past are gone, they are forgiven, new life is available to you. He says, my death and resurrection will bring about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You know, there's a powerful image of repentance from history that bears repeating this morning. It's a story that's set in the city of Warsaw, Poland in 1970. Warsaw, is how the Polish people say it. Warsaw, Poland. When you think about World War II, I mean, think about Poland in, in 1970. World War II had stopped. What, time, what year was it World War II stopped? You get your, head, your history thinking going here? 1945, right? World War II ends 1945. You move forward 25 years, you're in Warsaw, 1970. But back in 1945 and the years prior to that, Warsaw took it on the chin badly from the Germans, remember? Think to your history lessons. If you were Jewish, if you were Jewish-Polish, if you were a Jewish Pole living in Warsaw in the middle of World War II, where did you end up? You ended up in the Warsaw Ghetto. 
thousands of people crammed into place into a place where only a few hundred people should live. Many didn't survive the hunger, the hatred, and the horror. Those who did survive that awful moment in the ghetto were usually packed into cattle cars and shipped to the death camps that were run by the Nazis. Germany was a cruel taskmaster. It ended in 1945. 25 years later, December 7th, 1970, guess who showed up in Poland? Willy Brandt, the chancellor, the leader, the political leader of West Germany. He came to Poland for an official visit. And part of the plan was that Brandt would lay a wreath at the wall of the Warsaw Ghetto, honoring the lives of those who died at the hands of his own nation. But once Willie Brandt got to the wall, he made a very unusual and unexpected move that no one, including himself, anticipated. It was a move of repentance. He knelt. Those who witnessed the scene were awestruck. Here's a national leader actually displaying his emotions by confessing to guilt and begging for forgiveness. With his head bowed, he just stared. He froze in that position for close to 30 seconds. The place was dead silent except for the shutters of cameras taking the photos. Many years later, Brandt described the scene in his memoirs. He said this, I've often been asked what the gesture was all about. Was it planned? Was this some political stunt? No, it wasn't. He said, as I stood on the edge of Germany's historical abyss. Do you know what an abyss is? An abyss is at the edge of a cliff. And the abyss is down below. And it's where there is chaos, where there is evil, where there is absolute awful things down below. And he says, as I stood on the edge of Germany's historical abyss, what happened? I could feel the burden of millions of murders. It's all on his shoulders. And what did he do? I did what people do when words fail. He repented. Here's my conviction, friends. Fear often paralyzes us. We're like the disciples, frightened, startled at the events of our life. We're feeling the burden of our own sin. That fear comes around every 25 seconds and it hits us on the side of our window, if you will, of our life, like you can see the shadow coming every 25 seconds. You get rid of just one, one wave of terror and here it comes again. You're a 21 month old strapped into the back of the grandpa's car and you can't do anything about it. Or we're like the nation of Germany, not just fearful of the terror that keeps coming around and around, but also fearful of the implications of our sinful actions of 25 years ago. And in the midst of that, Jesus brings peace to each of those settings because as scripture states, when we kneel in repentance, forgiveness is extended in divine grace. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, through the work of Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why? For he himself, not me, not you, it's not up to us as individuals, Jesus Christ is our peace between us and God. And that's why Easter matters. Would you pray with me, please, friends? 
God in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus. Huh. If he hadn't come, if he hadn't died, if he hadn't risen again, we'd be wondering, is peace possible with God? I mean, it's one thing, God, we, yes, we desperately want peace with other people. We want peace with our nation, peace with other nations. We, want, um, we definitely want peace within our congregation, but, oh, Lord God Almighty, we also want peace with you. Thank you for the coming of Jesus Christ that, that enables us to know that peace, that we can come to you in repentance and say, Things happened in the past, awful things. And maybe, Lord, the, the nature of the awfulness is different depending on the person. And, but we stand at that abyss of our own history and say there's junk, there's ugliness. Forgive us, we pray, God. We bow our head somewhat in shame, definitely in fear. And we ask for your peace that's available through Jesus Christ because he himself is our peace and his blood, his work on the cross forgives us. We will live our lives accordingly this week, walking and extending peace. And we pray this in Christ's name.